Hey everybody, good morning, good afternoon. Thanks so much for being uh, here today in the next episode of In the Nick of Time. Today with Prakash, the Club B's uh, CISO, we're going to have a great discussion on how to keep up with uh, reinventing yourself so you don't become the next Kodak. And also look at uh, kind of the, the cyber threats and what you need to think about as a CISO. Uh, so, so very exciting uh, time to join us. Wanted to remind everybody, of course, if you've not uh, done it already, to subscribe to the mailing list in the nick of time.tv. We have uh, uh, effectively uh, a session every Tuesday with a guest, and we have a, a video every week now uh, on the technical deep dive. The video, if you missed it uh, last week, uh, and you can check our uh, YouTube uh, channel, uh, Nicolas Chillon. Uh, thanks for the uh, subscribe. Uh, and of course, if you have not subscribed yet, you should do that. We have uh, about uh, 1,200 people already. Pretty exciting to see that uh, within, uh, within, what, 45 days. Uh, we released a video uh, last week on Zero Trust. Uh, a lot of great feedback already from so many people, despite being a very uh, contentious subject. A lot of people don't agree with what uh, Zero Trust is about. So um, check it out. Give us uh, your thoughts. What are we missing? Uh, uh, what could be a good next uh, uh, topic? The, the video on Wednesday will be about Service Mesh. So uh, uh, stay tuned on Wednesday. You got to get a, an email if you subscribe to the mailing list or follow us on, on uh, LinkedIn. You're going to see that video. Uh, of course, you're going to get a notification also if you click on the little bell button on, on YouTube uh, to get the notification about uh, the next video. So do that. Uh, thanks so much for for helping us uh, spread the world on the on the tech uh, geeky stuff that we love so much about. Uh, so, like I said, today we're gonna have a, a special guest uh, with Prakash. I'm gonna bring him uh, uh, live in a second, but first I wanted to uh, to give you a little bit uh, of his background before we let him also give us uh, more details about his journey. Uh, Prakash joined in 2021 Club B's as the as a chief information security officer, head of security and compliance. He drives innovation and trust of their uh, security compliance capabilities as well. So it's not just uh, an internal CISO role, it's, it's kind of also looking at uh, what uh, CloudBees could be doing in terms of uh, uh, security compliance as, as a product capability as well. Uh, Prakash has about 20 years, over 20 years of experience, both in tech and architecture and cyber and compliance. Uh, before CloudBees, funny enough, he was at HSBC, where he led the digital strategy and architecture, helped the organization uh, drive public cloud and container adoption, where he led the uh, global open banking platform used in 19 countries. Uh, his uh, most recent role at HSBC uh, was focused on cloud and container security, where he helped uh, create this uh, new security process to protect the UK-based bank. Uh, accelerating the journey to cloud and, and container. Uh, of course, uh, he has fancy uh, degrees, unlike, unlike, my, unlike myself, which is always fun. And he grew up in Mumbai in India, where he's actually in India now. I, I, it's pretty late. So we're very thankful that uh, he was able to do this. He usually lives in the UK uh, with his family and his two daughters. So uh, if you want to follow him, of course, you have his LinkedIn uh, profile now on the screen. All right, let's bring Prakash on the screen now. Good to see you. How have you been? I've been well. Uh, thank you, Nick. And thank you for having me and for everyone who's listening in. 
you know, a great day to you. It's, it's end, end of the day in India, but in many places, <laughs> yes. the day is just beginning. So I hope you have a fantastic day ahead of you. Then Tony, we're so thankful you, you're there. And, you, you know, we're chatting uh, before uh, about the fact that India is kind of uh, always buzzing. It's kind of uh, reminds me of uh, uh, New York City, right? The city that never sleeps. I think uh, uh, India is kind of the country that never sleeps, right? Uh, it, it is. And, you know, it's an amazingly young country. Uh, you know, the statistics that people normally talk about a billion and a half people and massive population and big, you know, uh, catchment of engineers and all that widely publicized. I think what is always surprising when you come here is how many of them are under 35. You know, how many people just beginning their careers, you know, full of energy, full of ideas, Uh, full of the ability to work all hours, right? And, you know, the drive <laughs> eager, to make a change. Eager to do it, right? Yep. Yeah, eager to do it. Absolutely. It always gets always. you. And, and I come here and go back fully energized. Yeah, you can spend, uh, but you don't want to stay too long because then it's kind of depressing for, for normal people <laughs> like us, right? But, uh, you know, no participation trophies in, in, uh, in India, unlike, unlike here in the US, which, which is probably why the, The, the young leadership here is, is unfortunately getting uh, complacent and, and hopefully uh, that's not going to let us to uh, not be able to lead in innovation anymore. But uh, we'll talk about your, your, your journey first. Wanted, wanted to uh, give you a, a chance for people that don't know you uh, to, to tell us a little bit about uh, your background. And I, I kind of did a pretty uh, a poor job at describing your time at HSBC and you've done so much there. And now at Cloud B, so over to you uh, to give us a little bit of insights. Uh, yeah, I think the best way to describe my journey would be one that's fairly standard uh, for anybody who starts out in software engineering. Uh, you talked about my fancy degrees. The fancy degrees were just nice things to learn uh, along the way. Uh, you know, uh, if you if you do engineering, which is a standard kind of route, uh, when you grow up in India, you, you either do engineering or you do medicine if you're interested in science. Uh, I was no good at biology, uh, so I chose engineering. And you know, a lot of people will say I was no good at that either. Uh, but I think results have, have been pretty good. You know, I've, I've managed to achieve a lot in engineering over the, over the duration of my career. Interestingly, I, I did mechanical engineering and I spent my entire career in software engineering and in banking specifically. I don't have an accountancy degree, but I know an awful lot about banking and banking systems and, um, you know, arguable how uh, useful today's kids think that knowledge is, but it runs the world. And, uh, you know, over the last uh, 25 years, 26 years, I worked uh, in the UK across a wide variety of projects. I have worked on Um, you know, major complex backend systems, core banking systems, renew and you know, renovating them, expanding them, preparing them for the digital era, things like that. Um, worked on major banking mergers, uh, looked at how you separate banking uh, organizations, so banking divestments. Um, and what you learn across all of these is the more diverse the projects you work on, the more some fundamentals stay absolutely the same. Security is no more important today than it has been for a very, very long time. And when you work in banking, security is paramount at the top of the line of pretty much any conversation you have. Uh, and what you also realize is most of the challenges in security are not that people uh, 
don't know. It is often that people forget, uh, processes forget, and oversight is very, very common. And what you learn through this experience as you go through is you can tell the signs of when something's likely to go wrong. You get pretty good at judging risk versus just a, a bunch of findings, a bunch of you know issues that somebody might come up with, et cetera. And as you said, in, in HSBC, I've done a variety of things. I've worked in, in IT, HSBC and elsewhere before. I've worked across engineering. I've done a lot of coding in my time. I've done a lot of architecture um, and strategy, setting strategy for organizations. And when you talk about technology strategy, a lot of the literature talks about operational strategy, organization strategy, how do you construct your operating model and things like that. I've predominantly worked on the technical side of technology strategy. What should we do? When should we do it? How should we do it? Why should we do it? Those kind of conversations. And I think it's taught me to focus on the why. And when we talk in cybersecurity terms, and, and now I'm a CISO, many of the answers and many of the weaknesses are in why organizations do what they do. If you can figure that out and you know the processes all have a bearing in history somewhere along the line. We have muscle memory that people uh, overlook. Okay, Organizations have phenomenal muscle memory. The larger the organization, the more the muscle memory. The things you do today largely make no sense, but it made sense 20 years ago, so you continue doing it. That's where the gaps begin. And as a CISO, that's where I start looking. Which are those things that an organization does by reflex. That's when you do things that you don't think. That's what opens up the door to a phishing attack. That's what opens the door to a malware attack. And I go looking for those. Right. Yeah. And very good. It's it's very uh, uh, much about complacency too, and, and kind of routine and, and getting used to uh, uh, kind of the the, the norm, normalcy, and, and then that's where they get you, right? So, and it's kind of an interesting journey for you, right, to move from uh, from uh, banking, right, with HSBC to uh, to a product uh, kind of open source leading, you know, uh, uh, company like Clubbees. What what kind of pushed you to uh, to make that kind of a shift? People ask me that question all the time. Uh, <laughs> you know, HSBC is a completely different world in its own right. And before that, Lloyds Bank is an equally big bank. Uh, it's a different right. world in its own right. Uh, there are many, many departments, tiny departments in HSBC that are bigger than Cloudbees. Okay? Right. They wouldn't even register in HSBC. They're bigger than Cloudbees. So why <laughs> right. make this move? And why make this move after so many years in banking? I think I've made a pretty good... Uh, career out of spotting opportunities for actually making a difference. Now, whether other people agree it made a difference or not, to me, it looks like that was something I found very interesting. I'm going to go do that. It doesn't matter whether it's a massive organization, massive opportunity or not. And working in HSBC, I was, you know, for a large part, I was, I was among the teams that were driving the adoption of DevOps. We were trying to do that across the stack. Didn't matter whether it was mainframe or you know, the latest new mobile app that was being delivered. We wanted to adopt DevOps across the stack, um, get that agility across the stack, maybe different frequencies and different cadences, but the same approaches, the same methods. And we adopted CloudBeast when we started scaling it big time. We started the journey pretty much as most organizations do with Jenkins and Triop, you know, with Jenkins and get a degree of automation going. And when you get beyond a certain point, 
you need the enterprise support and you need the enterprise capabilities, which is why we started working with CloudBase. About a year ago, you know, in talking to Sasha, and for those of you who don't know Sasha, he's an immensely approachable guy. Please do get in touch with him. He's the founder of CloudBase and, you know, uh, along with uh, his co-founders, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, arguably they created this ecosystem we today proudly call DevOps. Jenkins was the beginning of automation of software creation. And, you know, some of his insights and, and when he talks to you, it's hard not to be impressed. So I was in HSBC dealing with Sasha quite regularly. I was dealing with Francois quite regularly, et cetera. And what strikes you is while in the technology industry, we like to think that DevOps is kind of old hat. We've been there, seen it, done it, got the T-shirt and lost the T-shirt. Uh, for the mainstream economy, the story is just beginning. Yeah. What we're going to see in the next five years in the world of you know rapid software delivery, whether you call it DevOps or you call it anything else, high-frequency software delivery, a world where software pretty much is the customer experience, regardless of which organization you are. And... All that is yet to come. The things we take as advanced technology today, you know, uh, automated deployments and hundreds of deployments a day or hundreds of thousands of deployments a day, et cetera, is nothing like what it's going to be in five years. Yeah. And I want it to be a part of that. I see this as the next big cusp, the next big change that's going to happen in the industry. You can sit on the outside and buy the licenses and, and use the tech. Sasha gave me a chance to come inside the tent and drive the change. Yeah. Here I am. <laughs> fun, fun. And, and so, you know, when, when you look at, obviously, you talked about DevOps and kind of the challenges and the fact that, uh, um, you know, this is just the beginning, of course, of, uh, of the adoption of DevOps, despite, you know, people claiming otherwise often. What, what do you think are the challenges, right, when it comes to uh, security and DevOps? I, uh, again, you know, there's just a lot of literature in this. We, we talk about um, shifting security left. We talk about um, real-time scanning, et cetera. And those are all necessary. But I think we've got to understand the basics of why they become necessary. And my, my philosophy is humans are very, very poor at understanding complexity. Okay. And the odd individual human being is brilliant. Uh, examples would be people who work in the space of quantum physics and things like that. If you can understand that degree of complexity, you're <laughs> an outlier. You're a real unique person. Zero most of society is not like that. And, and you right. know, most of software engineering is not like that, right? Most of software engineering is fairly straightforward applications that we build. So where does the complexity come in? You take an average sized bank. You have, you know, 2,000, 3,000 applications uh, you take an average size pharmaceutical organization, they will have, you know, 2,000, 3,000 compounds which go into making whatever drugs they make, okay? And there are systems behind all of these. And when we talk about evolution in software and we talk about microservices, et cetera, multiply that tenfold, multiply that 24, that's going to be the degree of complexity. That's going to be the degree of interaction between all these parts you cannot really contemplate these. Um, you know, it's, it's, it becomes humanly impossible to contemplate and assimilate and explain. And then we say now to make things really, really adventurous, we are going to change this 
10,000 times a day. <laughs> Do we really think, you know, in our current view of the expertise in the IT world, there are that many people who can stay on top of this complexity day in, day out and not make mistakes? I think that chance is zero, literally right. zero. Right. Okay? That's where the danger one, right? of security comes. Correct. And that's where the danger comes in terms of security. Someone somewhere is going to miss the ball. Right. So that kind of leads me to, to the next question, which is that balance right between velocity and, and security. Effectively, what you're saying is uh, the faster we go, the more likely we, it is we're going to make mistakes. You know, people argue, of course, the smaller incremental uh, change, the more likely it is not to break things. But when it comes to cyber and not just the performance and, and uh, uh, capabilities, but really kind of the, the cyber risk you, you potentially introduce into uh, the environment. You, you also saw uh, more attacks now from, you know, the lapses group targeting uh, source code repositories, uh, uh, GitOps, DevSecOps uh, pipelines. So kind of the, the, the ecosystem now is becoming heavily targeted as the crown jewel uh, and so you, not just the production systems, but even the development environments as well. Uh, yes, and, and that is not surprising. That is a you know standard progression of any threat landscape. Over the last 20 years, we've got very, very good at protecting the perimeter. We've become pretty good at nailing down networks and nailing down infrastructure and all that stuff. It's very unlikely today that you will find you know, the same prevalence of unhardened servers, unpatched servers, and all this stuff just lying around. So all the low-hanging fruit is done. We, we fixed it. We got pretty good at it. Where is the threat going to expose next? You know, it will move to the next weak link in the chain. And the next weak link in the chain is how we build application software. Um, the whole uh, business of building software today is, you know, you look around, how much code do we actually write? in any, any new application. It'll be 30% if you're really innovative. If you're pushing the boundaries and very, very few organizations do that, you're probably writing 50, 60%. The rest are packages you reuse across the board. Right. And remember I talked about muscle memory and the fact that we take a lot of things implicitly on trust. We take packages on trust. I used this package yesterday, it was fine. And you know, obviously I'll import it again and I'll be fine. How many imports do we include in application software today without even thinking, right? It's just Thousands, the de facto yeah. stuff. So is it surprising that these attacks have moved to that vector? Not at all. And that's where I think we need to start focusing. And, and you asked the question about how do you find the balance between velocity and security? Well, I believe this increase in velocity creates those risks, et cetera. Again, it's not a, it's not a problem statement we haven't solved before. Throughout human history, whenever we wanted to do something faster, we mechanized it, okay? A fancy word for mechanization today is automation, right? Except we use it in software terms. And what we really need to do is we need to mechanize this business of making sure that everything that goes through the assembly line is secure. You know, we build cars by the millions every year. How many wheels come off a car when it comes off the assembly line? Very, very few. Yep. How many wheels come off software the minute it lands in production? Okay. I have lost count of how many rollbacks I've done in my life. 
<laughs> because yeah. you figure out when you deploy, you figure out the wheel came off. So we need to get good at that industrialization of the building of software. And part of getting good at it is to be is to automate the heck out of making sure that any software that's built is secure, is safe. And we need to do that. And you know, how do we kill velocity? By saying, I will have all these checkers, I'll have all these scanners, they'll all produce 10,000 different things. And now the engineer who's supposed to write, you know, X amount of features a week is busy looking through dashboards that say, what's all wrong with this software? Most of it is noise. So alongside right. mechanization, we've got to get intelligence in and how we figure out for each individual finding, so what? Because organizations traditionally take risk. We have to be able to take risk. Otherwise, you're not a commercial organization. You're not going to be able to serve your populace, etc. There is risk involved in any enterprise. The answer is to figure out what is that risk? How important is it? Where is it? And making sure you only fix the ones that matter. If you run after the noise, you'll never finish. Yeah, ruthless automation was always my recommendation. You know, I remember when I was in DoD, a lot of people were reaching out to me and asking me, hey, how much should we automate, right? And I always said, you know, ruthless automation is the only answer. If you're asking the question, it all probably already means you should have automated it, you know. So that's, uh, you know, and people then jump to conclusions of saying, well, you know, are we, are we going to just completely remove humans? Uh, you know, I, I think that's not doable but, but at, at the very least we should only use humans where they they are really needed and remove the insider threat remove the uh, mistakes uh, potential uh that that humans would make and, and so kind of having that that flexibility is, is is kind of very important so you want to use humans when they bring added value on top not just uh when things can be uh, simply automated with the basic technologies so when when you when you look at the balance right between the velocity and, and security, do do you argue when you talk to companies that uh, um, there is a threshold, uh, you know, by which you know if, if they go past that number, uh, you you feel like they uh, they are starting to to make more mistakes, or is it just like uh, looking at bottlenecks and looking at the automation uh, landscape and and trying to uh, focus on automating and automating and automating. I think automating poor processes, automating poor capability or poor expertise is just asking for trouble. So you don't do that. I think you have to have, you know, for my advice to most organizations would be, um, you have to get pretty good at doing what you do. And then you start automating all the grunt work out of it. You can do right. these in parallel because there are many things. But that you are mapping and, yeah. Yeah. And the velocity in most organizations is nowhere near where it is unmanageable today. Okay, right. They're just getting started. Releases every week are fairly, uh, you know, I, I would say the adventurous benchmark in most organizations. Okay, And releases every week are fairly manageable. Not everybody is a Google and not everybody is a Amazon, etc. They all would love to be that, but they're not. Which yeah, we do 21, 21 release on platform one. It's not Facebook, but it's pretty good per day. You know, that's yeah. not bad. Uh, and so it's not thousands, there is a, it's not thousands. And, and there's a lot of time yet for these organizations to get it right, okay? to, to put in place the mechanisms that, that allow you to get it right. The technology to get it right exists. Okay? It's not as if we are inventing rocket science here. Right. So right. how do they find the balance? I think it's like, it's like driving you know, a fast car. Fast cars by necessity 
have to have things other than just the ability to go fast. You have to have the ability to stop. You have to have the ability to steer. You have to have the ability to prevent crashes. All of these surrounding peripheral ecosystems that you need to, you know, allow you to go that fast. You have to have those checks and balances. Compliance is a bad, you know, kind of. Uh, you say compliance in an engineering team meeting, and everybody groans. <laughs> right. The whole point of compliance is to just let you go fast without killing yourself. Right. right. And that's why, if you look at most regulatory um, regimes uh, across the globe, it doesn't matter which country it is in, they are designed to protect your customer. They are designed to protect the person on the street. They are designed to protect employees, etc. And in the main, regulation and compliance is all about risk management, which means you can close your eyes and go fast. Somebody somewhere is watching your back. Okay. Right. Right. And we need to make sure that that compliance becomes transparent and not something you have to talk about in an engineering team. It just happens. Right. You know, uh, if you look at fast cars, uh, traction management, uh, anti-slip braking, all these things happen without you thinking about it. When's the last time you thought about skidding when you brake? I haven't. In 20 years of driving in the UK, I haven't. The car takes care of it for you. That's what we need. The software assembly pipelines simply need to take care of it for you. Shouldn't be something you consciously think about. Yeah, yeah it's, it's baked and, in and not just bolted on, right? Correct. Yeah. And we're very close to achieving all those things. We can, we can do that today. I think the issue is, of course, in some nations, probably here in the U.S. more than others, there's a little bit of overregulation and people are, you know, starting, if, if you look at the DOD regulations, for example, there's a lot of uh, kind of unnecessary uh, steps that were created because, you know, some people made mistakes and then we overreact and we, we create more and more, you know, uh, uh, requirements. And, and then you, most people would argue, you know, when you look at how much we spend here, uh, you probably spend 60 cents per dollar on, on just, you know, bureaucracy, paperwork, acquisition stuff. And that's probably where it starts to become a part. And I think that's why a lot of people are frustrated, but it's, it shouldn't be the norm. I think the, the, the difference is overreacting. You know, I'm always cautious when I see, you know, things happen. I, you know, I was looking at the, uh, um, the, con the Congress committee, uh, the house had a committee on, on open source. And I was very afraid uh, that when they started talking about, you know, different uh, uh, vulnerability on, on the open source side that they were starting to talk about, like look for gin and things, they were going to overreact and start making claims that, you know, open source is not safe uh, compared to other software. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm always cautious when it comes to, uh, I guess, government bureaucracy that, that people don't overreact. Yes. And, and you know, I think uh, overreaction happens because we don't quite understand the risk. We don't quite yeah. understand the drivers of that. You let people make decisions on things they don't really <laughs> understand. <Yeah. laughs> I was impressed. It was one of the uh, congressmen that was actually a coder, and he was talking about programming languages. And and it's kind of funny then comparing the, the question he was asking to some of the other uh, congressmen and women's questions because they, they clearly didn't have the same background in technology. And you could tell they were kind of talking and using terms that probably their staffers had prepared, and, and then uh, you could tell they didn't really understand what the question really meant, but uh, that's okay. But you know, I think ha having uh, worked in a fairly regulated industry for a long time, uh, you get an appreciation for the fact that 
all all the people who are kind of tasked with doing the regulations and setting up with policies and all this kind of stuff their outcome that they're going after is something very different it's about safety for the person who doesn't right. understand what you're talking about right right uh, it's about and and are we going to get these kind of humorous exchanges of course we are you know and i have these humorous exchanges with my kids when they talk about music i know nothing about music they know a lot about it and you could say that the role is reversed right um, and i make a fool of myself um they so i think the important thing is to work in collaboration with all that you mentioned open you know open source being a risky thing um it's a very uh, i think it's a philosophical debate in the end oh what, I, uh, by the way i don't agree with open, what, i don't think it's actually yeah. more risky than commercial software but that's what no, they were claiming so what what we've seen throughout history is you know open systems are generally better in the long term it's just right. you know because yeah. there are more good people on the planet than there are bad people on the planet can open systems right. be abused yes they can can you know uh, freedom and responsibility and accountability be abused yes it can but eventually uh, you know the system rights itself okay yeah. and i believe the open source ecosystem flaws or not is a better world than an a world where it which is not transparent where you don't quite know um you know what's actually going on etc so the open source ecosystem has a very very long life ahead of it i think you know the blips that we see today are just blips uh, yeah. we will we'll find ways to address all of those and i, I say this with confidence say, right? yeah. correct and i say this with complete confidence because you know in cloudbees uh, the jenkins uh, platform is an open ecosystem we have the same challenges anybody else who's looking after an open ecosystem has uh but we're managing to stay on top of it and we're doing quite well you know controlling it and making sure it continues to be safe it's just you have to consciously expend effort making sure you stay on top of these things okay and i think that kind of really got accentuated when they hired you i i could i could tell You know, I had I had a few uh, I guess I'll call it uh, heated conversations with with Cloudbees in the past on some CVEs and and they took it seriously to their credit unlike Atlassian where you know they had fourteen hundred CVEs on Jira and Confluence and did nothing for years uh, Cloudbees took it seriously and and wanted to to tackle this very fast and and then they were kind of struggling also with like fixing the process to make sure that new features wouldn't wouldn't bring you know more CVEs and kind of compound. the problem and i could tell when you started which which uh you know i'm not going to take credit for you to be to be in the company but i think the pressure i put on club bees back then kind of pushed them to get a good good ciso part of the team so so whatever but i think you know what what's pretty cool is is to see the 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 drastic impact that uh you could have without disrupting uh the velocity of of the work thank you i'm flattered you think i'm a good ceo and and don't really mind whether you take credit or not you're welcome to all the credit um look <laughs> you did 90% of the work so you know yeah. the, the the key thing i think is you know it's never one person's job it's a team job uh, it, you you often ask i i get asked you ask and i get asked all the time is um how do you stay on top of something like you know jenkins which has such a huge footprint uh, 70 80% footprint on the planet in terms of ci it's an open ecosystem there are 2000 odd plugins a- anybody can rock up and write a plugin for jenkins 
how do you how do you manage this okay uh, yeah. complexity and the first step i think as an organization has to be if you have problems acknowledge them the fact that you know somebody called nick calls you up and says hey you got 20 whole you know uh, vulnerabilities or whatever in your system or i don't agree with this thing you're doing if i'm so close that i don't want to listen to you sooner or later i'm going to fall down a hole yeah okay? and i think the credit to the cloud base culture and management is we may not agree with you but we'll listen to you and if we think what you're saying has merit we will do something about it we we're not interested right. in in hiding and sitting on our backsides and hoping the problem goes away problems never go away okay yeah they compound uh, they hang around until they can bite you uh, <laughs> yeah yeah companies that so, try to put their hand in the sand you know i, I I remember the discussion with Atlassian where they were saying that you know because the CVE was not in the code path, and they had 1,400 CVEs, and you know allegedly they could demonstrate that each of the CVEs was not in the code path. I couldn't verify it because I had no access to the code. But yet, you know, you also have a tough time uh, be able to demonstrate, you know, kind of the uh, the component risk of all these CVEs potentially interacting with each other and potentially escalating privileges and. You know, and their 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 take initially was, you know, because it's not in the code path, we're not going to update the dependency. So they had dependency that were, you know, seven, twelve years old, uh, sitting there with CVEs yeah. not updated. And I always struggle with that, right? It's like, you, why why would you not proactively fix the stuff and update the dependency, even if it's not what you think is a cyber risk, but it's still tech debt to be sitting with a with a seven year old, you know, plugin or, or dependency. Yeah, and this is what I meant by you know you have to stay on top of the game, um, and tech debt is an interesting concept in itself. Okay, day one after your release, you have tech debt, whether you, you want that. to recognize it as that or not. Okay, so as we release software, we are constantly creating tech debt. The good organizations manage that proactively. They they invest time and effort. The main challenge. is always going to be a management challenge you yeah. have a finite amount of time you have a finite amount of resources how much of that do you devote towards new features and new capabilities and new markets and all that nice stuff that you like to talk about as an organization how much of it will you consciously and wisely invest in doing the boring stuff mm-hmm. which is cleaning up after yourself you know making sure right. you catch up to where the world is and one of the things we've done quite successfully in cloudbees is staying on top of that stuff um yeah now I, in if you take we have a wide variety of products over and above jenkins and um you know we work in the space of ci we have cloudbees cd which is in the continuous deployment world we have feature flag management we have cloudbees compliance all of these and you know we are not unique every other competitor regardless of whether they want to talk about it or not every other customer regardless of whether they want to talk about it or not has a tech debt problem because like i said day one after you release something you got tech debt yep and our job in leadership in cloudbees is to make sure we stay on top of that that we give teams the space and the ability and the resource to fix these things because there's a it's foolish hoping that somehow in their you know crazy five day week they're going to find a you know magic to a somewhere to go clean up you have to proactively make time and make bandwidth available but in the backlog right yeah 
Correct. And not just wait for, for a catastrophe or, or things to go so bad that you have no choice but to shut down uh, production for a month to clean up the, the aisles, right? Yeah, that, that's yeah. pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and the you talked about... No, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was saying, you know, and, and you have to get pretty good at finding all these things that matter as well. It's not easy. Yeah, you, know, you hiding, talked right? about uh, yeah, you talked about code paths not being relevant. That's true for a lot of the CVEs that get found. Uh, it takes a lot of effort to keep proving that the code path doesn't yeah, execute. It probably takes more time to code. prove it than to update the dependency, right? Yeah, and you know, that, I, I told those guys, actually, the time you spend like explaining to me all the fourteen hundred CVEs to all your customers is probably worth, you know, just fixing the freaking dependency, right? Yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, it's for us, it's a little bit harder because we've got to take a community together with us. Yeah, you have the um, plugins and, and the community. Correct. Aspect. And, and, you know, we, it's, it's sometimes uh, curious and, and, you know, funny, the conversations about some plugins. We can't find the person who wrote the plugin. Okay. Yeah. And it's just there and it's widely used. Then we've got, we have these circular conversations about who's going to adopt it now. Um, right. Because somebody that's has kind of the it. issue with open source, right? And, and that's kind of maybe the risk of, of some open source projects, right? You're talking about the community. Of course, many projects are small and tiny with one or two maintainers, and that's a different risk posture, right? To have less people, less eyes on code, less knowing, not knowing really who is behind something. And, and you're kind of facing different kind of risks when it's a, it's a smaller community than, you know, compared to a, to a Jenkins main code repo thing, right? And so the, the, the plugins and the kind of uh, smaller projects and dependencies is usually what comes and bites you, right? It is. And, you know, um, yeah, I guess it's, it's never going to be easy. Um, you have to stay on top of it. It's never going to be optional. So as you said, you can either acknowledge it and get the job done, or you can pretend it doesn't exist until it bites you. You know, most most companies, unfortunately, that I see nowadays are, are in the business of exits, right? So they wanna they wanna grow fast, go to the the unicorn status, right? Uh, the magical unicorn status that you guys actually achieved, um, and uh, you know they they wanna sell and then move on. So hopefully, they're gonna be gone by the time it comes and bite them, right? <laughs> but I don't know if that's a good uh, way to build businesses, right? Uh yeah, I guess I'm not the right guy to comment on whether that's the right. You know, lots of people have made phenomenal successes out of that kind of a strategy. Um, yeah, I don't. Like I it. haven't yet. I'll do so. it for you. I don't like it. <laughs> I, I like I like sustain. I like real real long term value to this world, not yeah. just the snowflakes. You know, but uh, yeah. So anyway, um, you talked about something that's obviously is very interesting to to the group here with the work you've been doing on the on the compliance and the uh, automation side of the uh, uh, what we call here in DOD and, and in the government, the uh, authority to operate, uh, you know, very similar process to some of the uh, banking and healthcare industry. And of course, uh, you know, the continuous ATO process is a uh, is a big challenge. Right. And, and, and there's a lot of uh, paperwork, compliant things. Um, there's real security versus just uh, a paper exercise, right? But but all of it is important uh, to different degrees, right? So how do you how do you make it real, and, and what what have you been working on to kind of help there? So I think it helps distill ATO into um, you know what is it actually trying to achieve? It's basically trying to say you're able to 
assess everything that you do, your software, your systems, your you know wider ecosystem partners, etc. for whether they are safe whether they comply with the rules that exist etc uh nick i don't know if i'm still live you seem to have dropped oh no, you're here you're here we got you all right cool. you're just full screen um, because you you're the main the main all right cool thank you <laughs> i get the spotlight you want to see my face you know so yeah so uh you know it's about assessing continuously what is your risk position where are you and you know sibila i hope i pronounced your name well i think you make a great point observability logging metrics knowing what is going on in real time and and the real time aspect matters especially as we start talking about container ecosystems cloud ecosystems where most resources are ephemeral um turning up to us after a container came along destroyed your ecosystem and then disappeared what are you going to do you yeah. don't have observability in real time you don't have logging in real time you don't have forensics going back forever there's no chance of actually figuring out what happened right and that assessment has to be real time. Cattle, yeah yeah you take ato's today that assessment has a periodic frequency that runs into years yeah useless i'm deploying 10000 times a day yet you assess my process <laughs> every couple of years i don't know how that gels so i think continuous at the biggest challenge is how do you change the mindset of the process owners the, the people who have to keep everything safe to say periodic assessments in the coming years are probably going to be useless they have right. to be continuous assessments real time dashboards real time visibility yeah. correct and i have this you know pet bugbear um, a lot of uh, you know the whole security industry we call it posture management and things are which are great nice terms to use but most of those are subjective opinions yeah. you have to get away from subjective opinions to assertions you're either safe or you're not and you believe you're safe because you can evidence that you're safe okay right. or if you say this is my risk threshold you're able to evidence why you believe that's that how you arrived at your calculations what is the data metrics that underpins your assertions Mm-hmm. and then when someone comes calling and says hey can you prove all this to me you have the evidence you don't say yeah it was on my kind of you know s3 bucket somewhere and we purge it every 3 months because we run out of data etc that's that's not good data is cheap today you got to be able to provide the evidence at any point in time because most cases when you need to go back and look at it it's not that the event happened yesterday it is that the event happened some time ago and you have to be able to trace that back So how do you do all this? I think those are the big challenges in ATO, like any other process that needs to go from predominantly manual, predominantly paperwork-based uh, approach to a highly automated, mechanized approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you take the stakeholders along with you on that journey? Because it's not easy for to do that in large organizations. Change management is not trivial. Um, so I think that's where we will have a. challenge we will have to build uh, you know compliance systems and cloudbees is working on cloudbees compliance the whole point of making cloudbees compliance is to make it easy to access make it easy so, so for most people, people have not heard of it right deal. so so most people have yeah. not heard of cloudbees compliance give us uh, is that a separate product from from the rest of the suite how did you build that so it's a product that works in conjunction with the suite and and with our kind of you know the the whole ethos for cloudbees has always been about how do i automate 
the process of creating software. We just mm -hmm. extended that to say, how do I automate the process of creating software and ensure it is secure and safe and compliant at the same time? So it's something that blends into the background. As I said, the key challenge for us has always been to make it um, transparent to the engineers. We don't want it to become the subject of every standup, you know, saying, hey, you got 3,000 uh, you know, CVEs to fix. When are you going to fix it? It's right. It has to be transparent in the background, cutting out the noise, identifying the things that they really need to fix, and guiding them to fix it. Okay. The important thing is, uh, sorry, the second important thing is we don't see ourselves as the next best scanning tool, the next best malware tool, etc. Those are all niche spaces with a lot of uh, very strong, very pedigreed players. We will work with all of them. Okay, uh, you integrate because the success of CloudBees has been this open embrace all the players in the industry. Yeah, we you do don't that. compete with everybody. Yeah. Correct, correct, and we'll integrate with pretty much you know uh, anything that's going out there. That's a plan. It's a long game. It's not something you solve you know overnight. And we're getting really good traction. What's, getting what's there. the outcome, I guess, for for people using it, right? So you you automate. Right, the all, all that those things. Do they end up with some kind of of a, of a dashboard to see uh, the risk posture and, and their, their their state, or what what's, what do they get? So what you get is essentially that continuous ATO dashboard. Are you compliant? Not compliant? These are the rules you were meant to follow. Are you following those rules? What was the mm -hmm. outcome? Where is the data that shows you all those things I talked about? Yeah, you know the the risk posture, the you know, what matters, all of that is about the assessment. What is important, what is not? Where do I focus effort? Where do I not focus effort? So we've got dashboards and and you know metrics that show you where to focus your attention. We've got the ability to assert, you know, this is why it is what it is. This is underpinned by data, not somebody turning up and saying I think it's yellow, blue, green, red, whatever. Okay. And then when auditors want to come and look at evidence, it provides them the evidence to, you know, get there. So it it helps organizations and, and continuous ATO is not unique to the Fed organizations. In right. banking, we used to call it path to life. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be other names for this. Healthcare. Essentially, yeah. it's about how do you make sure you're compliant all the time? Because compliance is one of those fantastic things. I, I like to joke about it. Where the people who make the mistakes don't pay the price. There's some poor person somewhere called the chief risk officer or the chief compliance officer, chief security officer, who gets to go stand and get hammered in the spotlight. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, we just need to make sure that um, we get there and we get there fast before the world becomes so complex that that we've all, you know the boat's already sailed and you can't really fix it. It's too late. Yeah. I, I know a company, a reg, reg, reg scale, R-E-G-S-C-A-L-E. Is using the term reg reg ops, you know, like get ops, but yeah. reg for regulations. It's interesting. Maybe in the next wave of of uh, you know a new naming convention thing for for regulations. It's kind of the same principle. So you your dashboard gives you kind of that real time visibility. You integrate with a bunch of existing products. Um, <clears throat> what are what are the kind of the the challenges you see? You know, when you look at the uh, you know DevSecOps now evolving. Uh, how do you see this change and 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 you know morph into uh, whatever is coming next? I'm pretty certain in the next few years we'll come up with a better name than DevSecOps. Okay, 
<laughs> yeah. real, this is a challenge to all those creative people out there. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure we can name this. We need, we need uh, a cool name. Okay. Yeah, we need a cooler name, right? Uh, okay. Because cool this, this sounds like the, the boring guy who just turned up to the party. Um, yeah. But they, the, where it will evolve is it will become a must-have. Okay. Now, again, you're saying companies would not be able to succeed without adopting it, and embracing it, so they won't be able to compete and move at the pace of other things, right? They, uh, they, they simply cannot operate. It's like having no electricity and having no yeah, water supply you, you and having any of those things. So you need it. And if, you, if, you go to most yeah, if you go to most large organizations today and you talk about their DevSecOps tooling, um, most of the CIOs, most of the you know execs don't register. The tool they don't ecosystem realize the importance of it yet. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the important thing is to maintain security. We are going to lock down human access to most of the production systems. We're not going to give you console logins anymore. We're not going to give you, right. you know, shell logins anymore. You, it's going to be in Git. It's going to come through a pipeline. Your pipeline doesn't work. You can't fix your production bug. Yep. You so the pipeline. You can't log in. No SSH. Yeah, you no can't do anything. Correct. And you know, the, uh, the dev, DevOps fabric that you have, the DevOps infrastructure that you have in your organization will determine your ability to respond to what's happening in your business. Period. You know, it, it, it's, it's, you very interesting because it, it's very interesting because, you know, three years ago, I was telling people in DoD that, you know, as a VC investor myself, I would, I would, you know, look at the, the maturity of, of the DevSecOps pipeline as much so as looking at the, the talent and and the product uh, as, as a foundational uh, piece of the puzzle to decide whether or not you should invest in the company. Yes. And, you know, it, 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 like I, I fundamentally believe it will be like electricity. Can any yeah. business operate without electricity today? The answer is no. Right. Uh, it'll become like that because no company can operate without software anymore. Uh, no company can operate without a very complex IT estate unless you're a you know, two-person shop somewhere. Um, and if you have enterprise of any scale, this will be mission critical infrastructure. So we're going to need a ton of talent, that, right? We're going we're to have a massive talent, talent gap. You're going to need a ton of leadership talent who really understand the complexities of this, who understand the importance of this, and are able to represent it to people whose day job does not involve technology. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, that's interesting because that's why, you know, we, we created the chief software officer in the, in the DoD. You know, I, I was kind of against coming up with a new, a new title that didn't really exist on the commercial side because I felt like, okay, we're going to create some DoD nonsense again. But no, I, I'm starting to believe, you know, the, the, the chief software officer and kind of that, that, that dedicated person uh, to enable the enterprise service, you know, DevSecOps platform work, service mesh, you know, security baked in things. It's kind of uh, an interesting concept, and I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you're going to see kind of uh, either VP or, or C-level exec jobs uh, dedicated to to the to the platform DevSecOps work, right? Uh, absolutely, and so it will evolve. I, I don't think it's going to be an overnight thing. Uh, the yeah. understanding of the space evolves, the criticality of the space evolves, and as I said, in most mainstream organizations, they're just getting started. The beauty of large organizations just getting started is it tends to be an exponential curve in terms of the momentum that they gather. They, right. They're slow to they start, see the results. take a couple of years, but you know, once it gets going, it really does get going.
Yeah. And you, you would say a, a new startup starting uh, nowadays, uh, not embracing this kind of, of concept would be a, it would be a massive tech that and would potentially be effectively a, a guarantee that they, they just can't keep up. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think any new startup starting today, uh, trying to go back to the 1990s with a nice waterfall method that says, you know, I will write, <laughs> I will spend six months writing requirement specs. And then that's I will not, spend That's DOD in 2022, by the way. <laughs> you have to go back to the yeah. 90s. You can just say DOD, yeah. waterfall, default model. It's uh, Look, you know, it's DOD right there. It helps to have a budget of trillions, okay? Um, or not, right? I, I argue actually start. because we have so much money, we, you know, it, it's kind of interesting, right? Because I argue because we have so much money, we're more comfortable wasting it. And, and when you look at some of the MOD in the UK and other nations, right, where they they barely have, you know, 10 or, or even 5% of, of the DOD funding, they end up wasting much more and being way more efficient, you know, and, and maybe uh, uh, coming up with better better solutions. Yeah, and, and that problem is not unique to the DOD, Nick. Most yeah. large organizations. Anyone with too much this. money, right? <laughs> any, any, any large organization has adequate funding. When you have adequate funding, uh, you know, efficiency, efficient, what do you say, of the of capital isn't, isn't great. Uh, but yeah. and, and you'd love to think that banks are very efficient at how they deploy money and how they do projects. They're not. But I think that's that's really a characteristic of scale that's a characteristic of size you put 10 people in a room you'll get really productive discussions things happen you put 100 people in a room doing the same problem they'll take <laughs> 10, 10 times as much time yeah yeah uh, that's that's the average meeting size in the department of defense uh, 100 people you know just to say <laughs> hi so yeah that makes sense. so i guess when you talk about evolution right uh of the DevSecOps space uh, obviously we're going shifting left right more and more get GitOps mindset, less and less uh, people in production and, and typing stuff on uh, on Linux, on SSH, right? So so that's a big uh, shift, right, for these people to effectively almost reinvent themselves from a, a Linux administrator operation side to uh, to some sort of a developer to some degree with not, you know, with special kind of site reliability engineer, you know, uh, modern DevSecOps engineering stuff. That's a that, that that's gonna be a pretty big gap of talent. So so companies are gonna struggle when they're gonna wake up and realize, wait, we can't keep up with our competitors because we don't have DevSecOps uh, or enough maturity in DevSecOps implementation. So we need to catch up. They're gonna want to do it, and then they're gonna realize there's uh, everybody's already uh, uh, in a cushy job, being very well paid. Uh, I remember in DoD, you know, we would uh, easily see between half a million to a million bucks per person. Uh, you know, of course, paying a company taking 50% of the cut uh, to to be able to find good uh, top top uh, DevSecOps engineering talent. So you can you can imagine it's just going to get worse. That's probably for people listening. If they want to learn something in life, you probably don't see this kind of opportunity to learn something that's uh, fairly recent and and not that complex to learn, and yet potentially making quite a bit of money, right? Uh it is, and, and I, I don't think you're describing a future state. That is the state today. Yeah, talent is the biggest it's already challenge. There. It's over here, so it's it's not it's not tomorrow's problem. It's, it's not tomorrow. Problem. Yeah. yeah, and it's gonna it's gonna compound. It's gonna it's gonna get worse. 
Correct. And you know, it's it's curious how the world evolves. If you go back to when we started our careers, you know, early 90s, etc. We weren't called full stack engineers, but you did everything. You right. Know, you built the screen, you built your server side, you built you did the admin, you built your infrastructure, you did everything. Yeah. Uh, today we've got events. a nice title. The, the creative people have yeah. now come up with a nice title. It's called a full stack. Engineer. Same thing. We need a better name for DevSecOps. It's the same thing. Yeah, right? we do. <laughs> we need a more marketable name. Um, but it's not surprising. You know, 10, yeah. 12 years ago, I think Mark Anderson said software is eating the world. And everybody said, nice catchphrase. Yeah. You know, we will right. repeat it, but but we won't acknowledge it. Then we said, we're going to do digital transformation. What's the end outcome of digital transformation? Pretty much everything your organization does is now run by software. Branches don't matter, shops don't matter, you know, physical logistics largely transform into software logistics, etc. So are we surprised that we need 10x, 20x, 30x more software engineers, more infrastructure engineers, etc.? I don't know why as a society and as a civilization we are surprised. Yet, how many schools actually have graduates coming out with computer science skills? So we need to plan better. Okay, it's not surprising. And most of the here. schools are, you know, have obsolete curriculums, right? I was trying to help some of the top universities here after leaving the department, and and every time I I told them, hey, you need to update the curriculum at least once a year, uh, they were freaking out, saying, oh, we really only do that every three to five years. I'm like, you can't, you can't do this in DevSecOps. It's moving too fast. And so they, they even struggle despite charging a, an arm and a leg to, to get you uh, your, your fancy certificate uh, and diploma. They, they just don't know how to continuously update the curriculums. The, 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 the professors are often uh, so far behind that it's, it's, it, it forces companies like Google to create their own, their own training even after they hire someone coming out of a, of a fancy university. That's kind of, that's not efficient, right? It's just, it's just and, and I assume in India, you have so much talent and I, we, we, every company I'm, I'm helping or advising right now is, is fully staff of, of amazing talent coming from India. So you, you guys over there uh, must be doing something pretty, pretty right because they are, they're taking over pretty much all the innovative IT companies. Um, yes. And, and, you know, is it, it's, it's very debatable whether we're doing everything right in, in India. Right. The, I, I suspect where, it will all evolve into is universities should focus more on teaching you the why, the fundamentals, right. the theories, why algorithms are written the way they are, why systems are built the way they are, what does good practice really look like? Right. Because kids today will learn the new languages themselves. Yeah, it's going to gonna change. You know, sending them to university to learn a computing language is a waste of time. Yeah. Uh, they, they will, you know, they will pick it's it up be themselves just by like the time, uh, any other language. Yeah. Correct. So I would want universities to focus on teaching the wise. What I'm always worried about is superficial coding skills without understanding how things actually work. Yeah. That's what causes. Correct. That causes the nightmares that we have to live with every day. Yeah. So I'd rather they spend time really getting the depth of why does software work the way they are. I'm amazed at how many engineers I come across who don't know. Uh, even the basics of how CPUs work. Yeah. Okay. How do, what, what exactly does a RAM do? What exactly is a heap? What is a stack? If mm -hmm. university, these things are not going to change that dramatically. Okay. Right. They'll get better. They'll get faster. And all that is given. But 
why they do what they do will stand the test of time. And I, and I need universities to kind of start teaching that basics and teaching it to a lot more people. Yeah. Uh, not just those who want, you know. Yeah, pretty much everybody should at least know that, right? Science. Correct. Pretty much like it's, there should be a high school, a high school class, right? Or something like thing. that. I don't Correct. Know. Yeah. Even maybe audio. Yeah. yeah. And, and the languages will sort themselves out. You know, today oh, it's Golang yeah. and, and, you know, Rust and things that are fashionable tomorrow will be something else. Today it's, Docker containers that are fashionable tomorrow will be something else. Yeah. Kids will pick all that up. Uh, I'm not worried about that bit. I'm worried about yeah. them understanding the depth. And the, the other piece I always argue is also like we, we should be focusing on, on, on teaching how to learn and self-learning is going to be key, right? I, I see so many people struggling, particularly when, when those people are not passionate about IT, right? They have a, they have a tough time. You know, they took the job because they, they wanted to make good money and that, that's fine, right? So, some of us, when we started, you know, it was about the passion of, of IT and we, we just loved it. Uh, I remember an interview I had uh, in my office maybe 10 years ago back in France with a developer that told me uh, they, didn't, they didn't have a, a, a device at home. They didn't have a, a laptop uh, at home. I'm like, what, what do you mean? You know, you, you're a developer, you don't, you don't have a laptop at home? Like, how is that a thing? You know, it, that just tells you like, you know, a lot of people were, were in the jobs to, to make good money, which, which is fine. But I would argue it, it would be pretty tough to keep up and, and stay up to date in IT, particularly with the, the, the velocity of, of change that you see now uh, in IT if you if you don't know how to learn. Yes, and, and I think increasingly that is true of every walk of life. You're, you know, yeah. Life is changing so fast that YouTube, uh, regardless of which domain you're in, if you can't if you can't keep up with the pace of learning. If you can't keep up with the curiosity that is required to do that learning, because yeah. it's, it's very difficult to be curious after long days of work, et cetera. If you can't maintain yeah. that curiosity, that energy. But, it, but it's true also that not every job moves as fast. I mean, look, there's different velocity, right? You, you look at yeah. healthcare, which is a fast moving environment. It's not moving as fast as, you know, software. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's really big, right? And, and you look at automotive and, and different industries, I mean, the fact is software is probably the fastest pace you can see in the world, um, you know, because of that decoupling with the hardware and, and the ability to just constantly innovate and, and think outside the box. But but the, the learning piece is, you know, universities don't do a very good job at, at showing, you know, and, and enabling people to find out how to keep up where they should pay attention to in terms of new source of, of knowledge, right? And, and how to do it. A lot of people reach out to me, you know, asking for like, what YouTube channel they should be subscribing to. Of course, they should subscribe to in the nick of time. That's obvious, but they should also do a few others like CNCF and Linux Foundation and, and so on, right? But but you see a lot of biased content too, right? You see a lot of companies uh, pushing the, their own uh, secret sauce, cloud providers, right? Getting you locked into a single cloud and you're learning everything under the construct of, of a very specific universe, right? And very little decoupling and abstraction. So I think you know learning the right way and the right things is is kind of challenging. Uh, it is, and and it's only going to get more challenging uh, because you know, like I said, the complexity of what we're dealing with is going to explode. Yeah, it's not going to get simpler. We will we'll love to make systems simpler. We'll spend a lot of time and effort making systems simpler. But the type of problems we are trying to solve, when we talk about digitization yeah, at scale, yeah. when we talk about these things, the type of problems are not simple problems. It's yeah. kind of silly and foolish to expect that you will get a simple system that solves a complex problem. 
if that yeah. magic existed, you know, 10,000 years ago, we'd have been all right, we'd have been settled. Right? <laughs> that magic doesn't exist. Complex problems require complex solutions. That's how it is. And, yeah. you know, we got to stay on top of that. So talking about complex problems, we talked about the the, the, the massive footprint of, of Jenkins, right? Released back in 2011, which is a lifetime away for, for IT, right? I mean, 11 years is like, uh, I mean, most people could call things legacy at that point, although you guys obviously continuously innovated and made it so it's not what it was in 2011. <laughs> uh, but, you know, a lot of things change in, in 11 years. So so how did, you, did, did the CloudB team uh, manage to, to continuously kind of think outside the box and, and reinvent itself. You've seen so many companies, right? Look at Blockbuster with Netflix, you know, missing the boat and, and Kodak. And I mean, there's so many examples of companies that were kind of leading the market and then disappear in disgrace, right? Missing the boat, even sometimes uh, with the, the, the option to buy the the new leader and, and missing out on that too, right? And, and underestimating what those guys would end up doing. Yeah, I believe... Uh, Blockbuster was it was uh, almost able to buy Netflix and, and they didn't do it and and you see the variation now. So uh, what what kind of uh, process and and work has it been uh, at least since what you've seen in in the last couple of years um, that that the the CloudBeast team had to put together to to manage to uh, to still be relevant? Quite quite a few things. I think um, you mentioned passion. You have to have passion for what you're trying to do, you know, and you have to have a mission that a large part of the organization believes in. Yeah. I'm not naive enough to think that when you start an organization, you say, hey, this is the mission we want to really go on. Everybody's going to sign up and we're all going to sing Kambaya and it's all going to be great. Kumbaya, that doesn't maybe. happen. But yeah, but maybe, a large maybe, SpaceX, of... maybe SpaceX with Mars, but that's probably the only one. Yeah. But, you know, we, we, need, we need to be realistic that you need a large proportion of your organization that is you know, driven by that mission. And the mission right from the beginning has been, can we automate the process of software delivery such that all mm -hmm. the boring stuff gets taken care of, okay? Uh, you talked about humans being used for what they bring to the table, the value they bring to the table. The one thing we've still not found a way of doing easily is bringing human creativity to the table, bringing human problem solving to the table, okay? If we can maximize their time to do that, in a world where you're not able to find as many engineers that you want, you have to maximize the productivity. You have to maximize the output they can produce. You don't do that by getting them to do boring stuff. Okay. Yeah. So that automation, that mission has been kind of a constant. You also talked about people who want to be, um, you know, flash in the pan, get mm -hmm. something up there, make a successful exit and move on. Yeah, hanging around for eleven years, building an industry year by year <laughs> by year, is testament to the people yeah. who created the company. They are in it for the. Unheard of. I think that's the only that's the yeah. only one I know. I don't, I don't think I can think of another company. Yeah. So it's dedication, it's commitment on part of a lot of people who have been around a long time around the Jenkins ecosystem, around CloudBees, who have mm -hmm. contributed to this. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how do you keep innovating? The beauty is when you have a product like Jenkins, you know, yes, there are you you when you say it's eleven years old, you can use the word legacy and I won't I won't complain <laughs> about the fact that people say it's legacy. Well it's 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 I'd it, like it's to kind look of at it, as, it keeps reinventing itself though. So it's I guess yeah. it's not not the entire code base is eleven years old, right? So right. I, I would I would like to think of it as it stood the test of time. 
how much software yeah. on the planet today has stood the test of time? There are, like I said, 70 to 80% of the footprint of DevOps automation is Jenkins or Cloud BCI, which is the enterprise version. That is a huge footprint. Yeah. What that gives the product is the ability to solve very, very different problems every day. That community helps grow the product. If you look at the coverage of what Jenkins solves today, and even now I'm amazed when I talk to customers, at the creative uses of Jenkins that people have, have kind of come up with. Okay? Yeah. It does some amazingly complex stuff in large organizations. There are people running you know, tens of thousands of pipelines in parallel every day with that platform. So it's not trivial. It's, it's big. Yeah, it's took a test of time. Very comprehensive. And amazingly, for its age, extremely flexible. Right. Okay. Now, having said all those fantastic positives, does it have challenges? Of course it does. I'd be a fool to say it doesn't. Okay. And it takes effort to stay on top. Um, security is my pet subject. Um, anybody uh, who has the ability, please reach out to Vadek Falonier. He's the chief security officer of the Jenkins product. You should probably have him on this uh, podcast yeah, as well. Sure. Uh, Nick is a really interesting guy. Knows a, what he doesn't know about Jenkins security isn't worth knowing. Okay. Yeah. This guy spends his life worrying about the security of the Jenkins ecosystem, worrying about the plugins, even stuff he's you know kind of uh, not massively a fan of plugins that he's not a fan of, he will take under his wing and he will make sure it's yeah, okay. Uh, he has no okay. choice to do it, yeah. That takes, that takes dedication. Right? <laughs> and I think yeah. that, that's what's driven the product. That passion, that dedication, that commitment's what's driven product. And if you think about uh, the, what do you say, um, the effort it takes to stay on top of the dependency tree that we have, the effort it takes to stay on top of 2000, or plugins, for many of which we don't know who the who's the person who's maintaining it anymore, doesn't have any maintainer, etc. And making sure all of those things are okay, and we are able to advise users, whether they are commercial users or non-commercial users, open source mm -hmm. users, advise them on what is the right thing to do. We stay committed to that cause, okay, and that's what helps us keep reinventing it. There's a, uh, you know, for those who have time, have a look at. Um, a fantastic story called Royal Enfield. It's this. Uh, it's a English company from the 1940s odd that somehow survived in India until about the 2000s, making motorcycles. Almost went mm. bust 20 years ago, and they reinvented themselves. It is still the Royal Enfield. It is their bike is still called the Bullet. Today they're a premium motorbike in India. People will wait in a queue to get one. Hmm. So age does not mean bad. Age just means you know a lot of stuff other people haven't even figured out yet. Okay. Do you have one? Uh, no, I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> not in the UK. The, the UK is too cold for motorbikes. Ah, uh, yes, yes, no. Yeah. Um, but I think that's that's the important thing. Over the 11 years as a company, we have learned so much about what challenges customers face in doing software automation at scale. Because no two companies are alike. Every individual company has its own set of headaches and set of problems and set of processes. So we've learned a lot. That allows us to keep reinventing what we build. That knowledge goes into the other products we built, Cloud BCD, 
feature flag, all of these are enterprise level. They're all built to be equally flexible. And we're confident in 15 years time, I'll be talking about all these same products, but in a completely new world, completely new guys still doing the job as well as they've ever done. Okay. It takes commitment. It takes effort. And, and it, it takes a passion to say, I'm not in it for the quick buck. Yeah. And in fact, you know, Sasha was, was CEO at some point and then he, I, I believe they brought a, a CEO that, that also shows you like kind of the dedication of, of the founders to, to, to bring additional talent to, to augment the, the team, even at the, the top level. Right. Yeah, it is. And you know, uh, you have to be self-aware. As an organization, you have to be self-aware all the time. The world's changing. Your organization's changing. You need new ideas. You need new talent. And if, if it's easy to get caught up in this bravado of, you know, we are a unicorn. Uh, yes, we are. That's great. I got a T-shirt. I felt very happy. Uh, <laughs> but the next day is no better or no worse than, the, you know, the last day. You're, you got more money in the bank, which means you can solve bigger problems which means you can do more work. Um, and the valuation gives you the accountability that you better not screw up. You know, you're a big company now. You're not a kid. You're not a small company. Yeah, so the ability to stay that, humble that, that, and, and get new talent matters. And, and that's what we're doing. Yeah, lots of people have uh, uh, money into the company and, and you can just burn that out and, and lose all that money. So that's, uh, that's a big uh, yeah. a stress factor for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we are focused on using that money to hire more and more talent. So anybody who wants to join CloudBase, we're looking for lots of deep technical engineers. Uh, it's not about building fancy application software. This is serious engineering yeah. at scale. So if you enjoy serious engineering at scale, we're looking for talent. What kind of what kind of talent uh, you guys are, are looking for, do you know? Uh, across the spectrum, we're predominantly um, Java-based, but, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the ability to architect and build very flexible systems that can be expanded. The ability to think out of the box and think ahead of the curve, okay? Um, and think about the problems that probably nobody's talking to you about today, but you can see it coming and you're building and designing for that. Um, you're going to be uh, as, uh, you know, as the market evolves, we will be offering many, many different ways of consuming our services. So it's about reinventing how we do some of the things that we've taken for granted um, and building new frontiers. Like I said, the journey is just beginning. Yeah. DevSecOps as an industry is just getting going. So you mentioned, right, when you when you did the uh, the engagement with the compliance uh, product, right, you you didn't want to reinvent the wheel and, and you partnered with a, with a lot of, of products in the scanning space and, and all that, right? when you when you look at companies right like like gitlab right that, that that come up with this this uh kind of vision of a of a turnkey you know some some might say bloated but um some some kind of turnkey uh devops platform what do you think about about that vision is is it something that's because because they they end up being in a, in a situation where they, they can't partner because they, they're competing with a little bit of everybody, right? So so what do you think of, of that vision when you compare with what you guys are, are focusing on? So I don't... Uh, those those end-to-end -end platforms, turnkey platforms have a place and, and a value proposition 
um, in the market, they will do well um, because the market is huge. The market is huge and it is nowhere near the size it's going to be in five years time. So there's a place right. for everybody to play and there's a, there are different needs across the space. Our belief is ecosystems um, and strong ecosystems uh, are necessary to be successful. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we kind of, uh, that's what we believe. And that's why it's been the ethos of the company for so long. And we're focused on building an ecosystem rather than I have to be the be all and end all product of every right. problem domain I get into. Okay. Right. Now, it's equally valid to argue that that's an incorrect approach. Uh, that's an approach that's worked for us. And, and we intend to kind of continue that approach. Um, I think the the biggest, I guess, issue I've seen when people, um, you know, want to adopt CloudBees product in, in DoD, for example, is the fact that, uh, you know, because we want to bring everything on, on Kubernetes and containerized and, and do the, the, the right things, um, we need a Git repo, right? And so so people will, you know, usually not be able to go with GitHub because they don't have a container. So they're going to go look at either Bitbucket or, or, or GitLab and, and Bitbucket is just not, that great so so people end up uh, picking gitlab and so if they end up buying gitlab then it, it's 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 just an interesting uh kind of train of thought of, of people then arguing well what, why would i buy you know also cloud bees and, and just use gitlab for the for the git stuff and not the ci stuff and and, and so there's kind of this conflict and particularly when people get started right where they don't have a lot of maturity yet in in ci or, or DevSecOps they don't see kind of the differences between the products and they just uh, feel that, you know, getting started there is good enough. And then, and then, you know, it, it's kind of a big lift, right. To move from a GitLab CI to, to another CI product. So then there's kind of this vendor lock in slash, uh, you know, um, I guess tech debt um, to, to move on. So, so what is your, I mean, I guess on the commercial side, you probably don't have the, the same problem because, People could just use GitHub and, and GitLab.com and, and whatnot and and just host the, the code elsewhere. Um, have you have you seen others kind of kind of struggle with that and and what could be a solution for people that are trying to to have a you know a Git a private Git repo that's not a SaaS and 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 I guess what what could be the the answer there? Um. It, it's it's quite a difficult question. You ask a very valid question. It's quite a difficult question to answer. And then, you know, we yeah. are debating and evaluating it on a pretty frequent basis now. Um, my own view is private Git repos, as more and more, you know, public Git repos suffer from malware and all these kind of things that we talked about earlier. For mission-sensitive organizations, private Git repos will become a necessity. Okay. Right. It's, it's not. Um, and with the adoption of GitOps, Git is the crown jewel, so you cannot, yeah. you know, you need Git, right? So it's not yeah. a... You need, you, you need Git and, and you'll have Git. Yeah. The challenge is in any organization of any size, um, it's very difficult to really see a one-size-fits-all approach ever work. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, it's you think some people will be willing to buy GitLab and not use, so they would spend the money right. because you can't just buy GitLab the, the the Git repo. You have to buy the, the full thing, right? So you, you could pay. You have to use the price of the full thing and just pay CloudBees on top. Correct. If I'm trying to optimize 
productivity, if I'm trying to optimize developer experience, if I'm trying to optimize speed to market, all of these things, the incremental cost and complexity of having a best of breed approach integrated into the thing is actually a one-time cost. It is yeah. relatively trivial compared to the overall price. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's anecdotal. So you're what, saying what the cost need, is anecdotal and they should buy both. Correct. What, what we need though is engineering leadership, IT leadership that gets this problem space. Right. Because it's an do, easy do, do mistake think, to make. It's a newbie mistake. With with the importance of Git there, right, becoming kind of that, that source of truth and that GitOps kind of focal point, right? Do you think CloudBees is going to be thinking of getting involved in the Git space? Um, it depends. Um, and next time, hopefully, I'll have an answer for you. Good. But he, he, I, I mean, I guess you, <laughs> you would again. argue, and you would argue that, I mean, at least it's it's not a dumb idea. It's not a dumb idea. Uh, you know, trying to offer more capability, more value across that life cycle. And, and yeah. if you talk about our sweet spot as the automation of software from idea through to production, uh, that chain, yeah. Um, then it's not a dumb idea to think about every aspect, every interaction across that chain. When you guys started, GitLab was just a Git repo, and now it's a, it's a, you know what they want to be a, a full, a full DevOps platform. So that kind yeah. of became a competitor out of nowhere, right? Uh, before it was no big deal, uh, but now it's kind of okay. What are we going to propose as as a Git repo? Uh, you yeah. know, if people want to pick something, so. Um, and I, I just don't see Bitbucket winning the battle anytime soon. So, yeah. Look, there are every time you get this kind of you know area where there's a lot of demand and and becomes a necessity, you will get a lot of competition. Uh, I can't yeah. imagine a world where it's only going to be GitLab and it's only going to be GitHub in the Git space. Okay. Right. Um, the so you know there are many options in terms of how we bring that value to customers. Yeah, and like I said, our, our history has been one of uh, co-opting, collaborating, rather than saying we have to do everything under the sun. Okay. Right. Um, so we are uh, we are thinking this through quite frequently, and and you know, is it like you said, is it a dumb idea? Of course not. Yeah. Do we have an answer that that we believe we, we are very confident in right now? Not yet. Watch this space. Yeah. Um, Someday I'll be back with news on that front. Good. Yeah. I when I, I remember bringing it up to, to Sasha and the team maybe three years ago. And I know back then, you know, GitLab was not as big as they are now. And it's because they kind of brush it off and, and say, well, you know, we don't really see the problem on the commercial side. And, I, you know, I think it's it's changing. And I think that's good that you guys are, are at least debating what, what to do on that. Because I, I know you guys have been uh, acquiring, right, uh, quite a few companies over the years. Um, I guess, you know, how do you, how do you make sure that, you know, those companies integrate into the ecosystem? Because I know, you know, I remember when I got briefed on some of the, the companies you guys, you guys bought, the marketing was a little bit confusing because there was a CD product that wasn't really integrated yet with Jenkins at the time. And, and it was like, I don't understand where the line is, which one do I use when and under what conditions, so I know, you know, for any company that buys something, there's always going to be kind of this transition period. And I think you're now getting past that, that, 
that transition phase where you have a, a better kind of uh, uh, uniform marketing story on, on you know what to do when and, and how. So what has been that process in the last couple of years that you've seen the companies go through to make sure that uh, you know those companies integrate into the, the ecosystem? So it's a really interesting question with a very complex answer. Um, <laughs> the, the integrations are always hard. It yeah. doesn't matter uh, you know which which business you're in. Integrations are hard, and, and like I said early in my career, I did one of the biggest banking integrations. I was part of the core team that merged. You know, it's the biggest banking integration on the planet, as far as I know. Uh, that's huge size. That's hard. It doesn't matter whether you you know integrating a ten person company. It's equally hard. Okay. Yeah. The it's even more difficult in the software world because what fundamentally drives the creation of a software product is the vision and the passion of the people who believe in this is what great looks like. Mm-hmm. And you now integrate them and you say, actually, we've got a different vision of what great looks like. And we'd right. like you to come on board and adopt our approach and our vision for great. Um, mm-hmm. That's not easy. So will you see that dissonance uh, for the, as you said, you know, transition period, that dissonance is quite common. I think, and what is noticeable is in the marketing world, but what is often kind of, what drives the message that we give our customers, the, you know, um, our explanation of our value proposition and what the product does and what the platform does has become more uniform, become more consistent because the underlying product is now more uniform, more consistent, better integrated. What we have today is this you know, SDA platform or the cloud-based platform, which does that spectrum of jobs that you need to do to go from idea to production. You know, How do you integrate software? How do you build software? How do you keep on track of deployment of software and releasing it and managing the governance of that release? How do you do you know, feature flags in production? How do you stay on top of proliferation of feature flags? It's very easy to make one feature flag. Extremely hard to decommission the damn thing. Okay. Yeah. And then to go figure out that you have tens of thousands of these things running around is not easy. So all of that is now seamless in the platform. You're now building compliance as a seamless thing in the platform. It takes time to align visions. It takes time to align what great looks like, what everybody's outcome needs to be. I think we've done quite well in that space over the last couple of years. Um, and we're starting to see the fruits of that now. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's been uh, obviously uh, uh, very interesting to see quite a few, you know, companies by, by different companies. Um, you know, you, you've seen companies like Twistlock, you know, get acquired by, by Palo Alto initially, allegedly the, the, the company was going to remain, you know, separated and separate branding and, and and surely you know uh, within a few years that 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 promise got out of, out of the window and and unfortunately what you see also sometimes is particularly the bigger companies particularly publicly traded companies end up kind of destroying the culture and, and kind of the the branding and, and kind of the a lot of the the reasons why they bought the, the company in the first place I've been I've been always surprised to see that kind of debacle happen and and then you know. Uh, Palo Alto integrated, you know, Twistlock into into their suite uh, of of product Prisma, and and uh, you know, kind of became a, a bloated, you know, capability and, and very expensive for people that just wanted uh, the container stuff, and it, it was difficult for existing customers, right? So there's there's always this kind of balance between 
you know, integrating the the people and the the, the product, and and then also making sure you're not you're not you know burning out or, or ruining um, kind of the the whole culture and and the reason why this company was even uh, successful to begin with, and why you you ended up buying it. And it's uh, I think it's easier when you're smaller, you know, publicly traded, uh, privately owned company like like you guys versus you know the, the bigger uh, publicly traded um, acquisitions because they 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 have a, a very well defined m a process that that often ends up uh, you know creating more problems than than solutions yeah I, I assume they have their own set of challenges and, and what they're trying to get done the way we approach integrations and m a is very simple the the lens that we use is what will add value to a customer if then what you buy uh, is based on that rationale of this will add value to a customer rather than add yeah. value to me as a company. Right. Uh, that customer value doesn't disappear simply because you acquired a company. Right. Okay. And you acquired a product and now we need to change the culture. You're still trying to solve that same customer problem. Right. When If you stay focused on that, it's, it's slightly easier to keep egos outside the door. Um, yeah. And, and collaborate and then make sure that you start aligning the path of the product lifecycle, the product roadmaps, and get to a place where the collective product offering kind of still solves a super set of customer problems that you were trying to solve in the first place. Okay. Right. I think we, we, we're trying to make sure that we focus on that bit, which is everything we acquire has a certain basis and a certain rationale in a very real customer problem we can't solve today. Yeah. Well, talking about that, what is what is the future of of cloud bees and uh you talked about the, the compliance uh product you've been working on but uh i'm sure that's the tip of the iceberg uh, i wish i knew uh what future <laughs> looks like it's, it's you know the future well, the, short, the short term we can't use the short term future <laughs> think, yeah. no the, the main not, the main thing maybe is not 11 years right yeah we, we are we are focused on you know Two things really. The, the first is we have an immense set of customers today. Um, they're large organizations with complex problems. They invested a lot of time and effort and money in the CloudBees platform. We have to keep delivering for them day in day out. And, and you know, so if I look at the immediate horizon, it's about continuing to solve new problems that they are bumping into as they try to scale up their, uh, you know, their organizations for DevSecOps, etc and evolving the cloud-based platform to do that. In parallel, what we're doing um, is three years out, we believe that this, you know, the whole IT landscape will be very different. How we build software will be very different. Nobody talks about low code, okay? Nobody talks about generated code. All of these things will become the norm. How does the world or the DevOps world look like in a world of no code where don't really have a formal process? Uh, to do these things. How does the business of building software look like when you have prevalence of SaaS services across the board? Okay. Um, how do you allow all these different SaaS services? And again, it's very difficult to conceive any SaaS service that will say, we will be the one-stop solution for everything your enterprise needs. Never going to be that. So how do you integrate all of these into producing the applications and the systems that that your organization needs, that your customers need. So we're really talking through those aspects of trying to understand 
what problems and challenges will customers face how do we build the next gen capabilities into our platform that we need to address um, to to get there what we don't want to find is uh, you know we're so focused on today and so focused on solving today's problems that three years hence arrives faster than you think and and the world is a very different place so that that's what we're working towards yeah that's that's obviously a a pretty big lift uh, particularly when like you said uh we're moving off of this waterfall uh, mindset and and you know we, we always try to do our best to to estimate and and, and imagine what the work the world is going to look like in in two or three years but uh you know we'll, we'll be pretty rich if we were able to be right all of the time right so um uh so it's yeah. it's always a, a balance of of like you know uh commitment to getting things done but also looking at uh feedback and and delivery uh of capability to your end users uh, in production to to really know what's sticking right correct correct and you know um someone talked about uh observability and metrics in software um that's true in software that's true for organizations we just call it different we call it feedback loops yeah. and we call it you know customer feedback and uh, user uh, responses uh the one thing human beings are very very generous with this feedback you just have to ask okay yeah. and yeah uh, the the more passionate the more uh, painful sometimes it can be <laughs> but they contain really 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 good nuggets of you know insight that you can live a lifetime and not get okay yeah um so i, I guess that those are the things we need to keep doing and keep doing well right and the, the future reveals itself 3 years is not a very long time no um, time flies time flies well i know uh we are out of time but uh wanted to give you uh the last the last meaningful words because i'm going to after after you're done i'm going to i'm going to tell people about the next guests we have coming next week so i'm going to let you uh tell us your thoughts uh before we uh we let everybody go and 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 I wanted to thank you of course for for taking the time this was uh, an awesome session i think people learn a lot i think it's going to be probably watched a lot also the recording because there's a lot of uh, pretty big uh, gems in in what you you told us today uh so first wanted to thank you second you know over to you to give us a little bit of uh, uh final words and then I'll, I'll tell people about the next show uh so my my final word really is just to reemphasize uh, is some of the key things i said which is in this world of software automation we're just getting started um there are a lot of clever people on the planet uh, there are many complex problems on the planet most of them can be solved uh, you know and, and will be solved through software i just like um, that participation that um, the confidence that we're just getting started and it's going to get much much better going to need a lot of talent so request to whoever is in a position to generate talent um to encourage more people to get into this domain it's a fantastic domain and um security matters it's very very hard to repent at leisure and it's very difficult to recover from that so all the engineers who think security constraints and security requirements uh, are a pain um it'll help if you change your outlook uh, it makes my life a lot easier uh help us help you 
because no engineering team looks good when their application gets hacked. Um, so help us help you. And the last bit, for all the creative folk out there, can we come up with a better name, please, than DevSecOps? <laughs> that's a that's a very important last final one. We'll we'll make sure people start working on it. Uh, again, wanted to thank you. Uh, next week uh, we're gonna have uh, Megan Samfold. She's the VP Chief Product Security Officer, Energy Management at Schneider Electric. So we're gonna be talking about something pretty uh, unique, but but I think it's very important to to people here about industrial control systems and her idea of incident common system and why ICS systems are so critical for critical infrastructure, what makes them different from traditional IT, and what does the role of a chief product security officer entail, uh, but also uh, you know, what kind of cyber threats uh, we're facing when it comes to ICS uh, systems as well. So it's gonna be a great discussion with Megan next week uh, on Tuesday uh, at uh, 1 p.m. on the 24th. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, be, be healthy, and thanks, uh, Prakash, for staying so late with us. It was great to see you. Stay safe. Bye-bye. That was an enjoyable conversation. Thank you for having me, Nick. Thanks. Yeah. Bye.